Good morning. My name is Rick. The Old Testament reading is found in Obadiah verses 10 through 12. Because of the slaughter and violence done to your brother Jacob, shame will cover you, and you will be destroyed forever. You stood nearby. Strangers carried off his wealth, and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem. You too were like one of them. But you should have taken no pleasure over your brother on the day of his misery. You shouldn't have rejoiced over the people of Judah on the day of their devastation. You shouldn't have bragged on the day of their hardship. The word of the Lord. The New Testament reading is found in Philippians 2, 5 through 8. Adopt the attitude that was in Christ Jesus. Though he was in the form of God, he did not consider being equal with God something to exploit. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a slave and by becoming like human beings. When he found himself in the form of a human, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The word of the Lord. If you're able, please stand for the gospel reading found in Mark 10, 45. For the human one didn't come to be served, but rather to serve and to give his life to liberate many people. The gospel of the Lord. Praise be to our Lord Christ. Remain standing as we pray. Almighty and gracious God, we thank you for your word to us today. We ask, Lord, as we listen to your word being read and taught, that you would open up the eyes of our hearts, that we would see you. Open up our ears, that we might hear what you're saying to us. Open up our minds to understand and our hearts to believe. We pray these things in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And everybody said, amen. You may be seated. Good morning, everybody. Let's give a greeting to our friends joining us online, everybody on Facebook, YouTube, our website. Woo-hoo, we miss you. We continue to hear each week from different ones of you who are saying, man, we can't wait. We're so close. We're about to get the vaccine, and here we come. It's wonderful. We can't wait. I also want to remind you that in two weeks, we only have one, so we only have one more Sunday meeting up here at North, but in two weeks on February 7th, Super Bowl Sunday, uh, we are going to be meeting back downtown at the Antlers Hotel. New location for us, but it's going to be exciting. Ken's pumped. I'm pumped. And by the way, Ken, I want to go on record. If you ever want to moonwalk, I am okay with it because I certainly can't. Um, And speaking of the Super Bowl, I've just wondered, anybody going to watch the football games today? NFC Championship game, AFC Championship? Anyone have a rooting interest in these games? I I, I have a confession to make. Um, Our son, he's 11, And somehow, somehow he has turned into a Chiefs fan. And I I mean, I know, I don't know where we went wrong. You know, we did everything right. We raised him up in the way that they should go. We bought him Tebow jerseys when he was real little. We we taught him to watch the games. We we saw, he saw the Broncos win a Super Bowl. I, I, I really don't know how we went wrong here, but somehow he's a Chiefs fan. So I will probably join him and root for Mahomes and the Chiefs to to win today. But I think maybe we can all agree that none of us wants to see Tom Brady in another Super Bowl, right? I mean, I think we can all agree. If there's one thing that can unite America right now, 
It's that we don't need Tom Brady in another Super Bowl. You know, there is this wicked pleasure that sports fans have. And if you're not a sports fan, sorry, maybe there'll be something else you could find to relate to this. But sports fans, there's a wicked pleasure where if your team is not doing well, you can at least take pleasure in in your rival not doing well. So the Broncos have been terrible for a long time, but you know what? So are the Raiders. (laughs) Raiders kind of Raider, you know? And we, we, can, we can laugh about that. We can take pleasure in the fact that the Patriots were awful this year. We can say, yep, go on and be grumpy, Belichick. You know, we can, we can go with that. And so there is this thing, if, if I can't experience success, at least I can rejoice in my rival also falling apart. But actually, this extends to other areas in life, of course. It's not just in sports. It happens all the time. And it happens more often than we'd like to be honest about. Our text today is the book of Obadiah, and we're in this series called Everyday Prophets. And Everyday Prophets, uh, we are using that as a title, as a way of referring to the minor prophets. And the minor prophets are not less important, they just wrote less. And so they're the shorter prophet books in, in the back of the Old Testament. They're probably the books that the pages still stick together in your Bible, because most of us don't read these books all that often, and that's okay. That's why we're doing a series on it, hopefully to kind of you know, get your interest going to say, wow, that's in the Bible? Yeah, it's crazy. And there is a sense in which all of these 12 minor prophet books actually in Jewish tradition belong together and is sometimes referred to as the book of 12, the book of the 12. And um, we're going a little bit out of order. So we made these bookmarks for you uh, last week. You can pick them up at the tables in the back and they give a list of of what we're covering. And this is the one week where we're a little bit out of order. Amos will be next week. Pastor Jason, you may not know this, wrote a 40-day Bible study on the book of Amos. So I thought he should go ahead and teach Amos. And since I'm preaching at North next Sunday, I thought, let's flip-flop this. So you want to stay in, in, in line with what we're um, preaching on. The bookmark kind of guides you with that. And so today we're looking at Obadiah. And Obadiah is a short book. It's one chapter. It's a single chapter. And really what we're exploring as we look at this book together this morning is what to do when your enemy falls. What to do when your enemy falls. Or if you'd like, what to do on your enemy's worst day. What happens when the person that you kind of don't like anyway is having their worst day? How should you respond? And so maybe it's helpful for you this morning to think a little bit about who that might be for you before we open the text. Who might that be? Now, it's easy in this kind of social, political climate to think about your political enemies and your ideological enemies. That's easy. Let's press a little deeper. What about the, the coworker that you know, snubbed you? What about the supervisor that never seems to notice what you're doing and your good work? What about the ex-spouse who caused you a lot of pain? What about the old college friend that is no longer a friend. What do you do when someone you don't really care for is having their worst day? Now that you have that in mind, let's open up the scriptures. Obadiah 1. The vision of Obadiah, the Lord proclaims concerning Edom. We don't know a lot about Obadiah. We don't know much about the man. We can make some pretty good guesses about the timeline, and we'll talk about that in a moment. But we know right out of the gate who he's talking to. We know right out of the gate that he's addressing the people of Edom. Who are the Edomites? 
Well, a couple things we ought to know up front. Edom was one of Israel's oldest enemies. In fact, when Moses was leading the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt in the book of Exodus, they ask permission of the king of Edom. And they say, can we cross through your land safely? And the king's like, nah. No, I'm not going to allow it. He's like, dude, we just got, we've got these people. Like, they were slaves. We just need to walk through your land. He's like, no, I don't think so. We won't take anything. We don't need much from you. Nah, that's a hard pass. And now, as this book is being written, the likely context for it is that Judah, which is the southern kingdom, you might recall in week one of this series, we said Israel eventually splits in two after Solomon and you have the 10 tribes in the north that were called Israel and the two tribes in the south, which were called Judah and it's where Jerusalem was. This seems to be addressed to the way that Edom responded on Judah's worst day. Well, what was Judah's worst day? It was when Babylon came. In three successive campaigns of invasion, they, they, they took the people of Judah away. They carried them off into Babylonian exile. And so it's a pretty decent guess to say that Edom is being rebuked for the way they responded as Judah was being taken away. But Edom is so prominent among Israel's enemies that oftentimes in the Old Testament, Edom is a shorthand for all nations who are hostile to Israel. Imagine the name of your people being a shorthand for all of the enemies. In fact, besides the ancient superpowers of Assyria, Babylon, and Egypt, besides the superpowers, Edom gets mentioned more times in the prophet books than any other nation. God has particular attention, gives particular attention to them. And so this morning, I want us to ask ourselves, what are the sins that Obadiah warns about? What are the sins that he's warning about? Because these, this is a word, this is the word of the Lord to us today. And so in Obadiah, Verses three and four, he says, your proud heart has tricked you. You who live in the cracks of the rock, whose dwelling is high above in this sort of cliff fortress. You who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, I will bring you down from there, says the Lord. They lived in the cliff high in the rock, secure and safe. The first sin that the Lord through Obadiah warns us about is pride in your position. Pride in your position. The sense of saying, I'm secure. I've made all the right choices. There's no way anything bad would ever happen to me. Pride in your position. And this pride sort of comes up a little bit when you notice what happens to people who make different choices than you, you know? So if you see someone who gets sick or whatever and you're like, well, you know, I've never seen them wear a mask. Or someone has a health issue or something's going wrong with their heart. They're like, you know, they're always posted on Instagram how they're eating cheeseburgers. So, <laughs> And there's a certain pride that we imagine that the world works in a tight system of cause and effect. And if we would just do all the right things, well, of course life is going to work out this way. And these people, well, they don't make great choices. So, you know, well, I'm just saying. And there's a certain pride in our own position that usually only lurks its ugly head when we see something happen to someone else. You're like, you're feeling pretty good about yourself, aren't you? You're feeling pretty good about your choices, your this. And look, there's nothing wrong. In fact, the Bible is for you making wise and good choices. There's a whole lot in the Old Testament that's about wisdom and how to walk in a way that generally leads to good things. 
But there's a difference between making wise choices and becoming prideful about your position. I mean, for one thing, what did Edom do? They didn't create the cliffs that they were dwelling in. They didn't create the crags and the rocks, but they're acting like that's a fortress that they built. It's not their fortress. They just happened to live there. And how many times do we boast about things that are actually not our own doing? How many times do we brag about a good standing or good social status or economic status? It's really not completely our doing. But there's another side of pride that we don't often think about. Sometimes we think about pride only in the braggy, boasty, I'm so awesome kind of way. But there's, a, there's an ugly underside of pride, which is actually resentment. Resentment is wounded pride. Resentment is pride that says to yourself, I deserve this, but I did not get this. Therefore, I resent the person who did get this. So there's a promotion at work. Or there's a job that you interviewed for. There's something else. And you're like, well, I should have, and I didn't. And it might, not every time is it the result of pride. Sometimes you're right. It should have been yours, and, and, and you were the victim of an injustice. But there are other times where our resentment is the result of a kind of wounded pride. Now, Edom, the Bible tells us who the Edomites are. They are the descendants of Esau. Does anyone remember the story of Jacob and Esau in Genesis? Esau is the hunter, wild man, comes back starving, and he sees his brother Jacob has this nice pot of stew, which he deliberately cooked in front of him, and he's like, what is that, beef bourguignon? Or no, I don't know what he was smelling, but it was was amazing. And he's like, I need that meat stew. And Jacob goes, well, there's something that I kind of want. It's your birthright. And in Israelite custom, The firstborn would get this sort of double blessing from the father. And Jacob wants his birth, his brother's birthright. And Esau is desperate in that moment. So he says, sure, man, whatever. You can have the birthright. You can have anything that you want. Just give me the stew. Takes the stew. And this results in some animosity between the brothers. It lasts a lot of years. Jacob has to flee Esau. Some 20, some years later, he makes his way back. They have this kind of sort of reconciliation, but their children's children's children go on resenting each other. How is it that sometimes when we make a mistake and we forfeit something that should have been ours, we suffer because of our own mistake, how is it that we can still brew resentment? It's interesting because the root word for the word pride is to boil over. And you kind of wonder if God is having a little play with words here to say, the boiling stew was how Esau got in trouble, and your boiling pride is what's causing you to deserve my judgment. When I think about the way that resentment leads to retaliation, we we see examples in, in global history, in world history, students of World War II, understand that the rise of Nazi Germany came after there was a deep resentment that was being tapped into post-World War I. And that was used as a way to sort of cause the, the rise of Hitler. Some 19 years ago or so, I saw a documentary made by the journalist Thomas Friedman trying to help the West understand why there was so much rejoicing in the streets in some Middle Eastern countries post 9-11. And he made a documentary called Searching for the Roots of 9-11. He talked about the resentment in many Arab countries toward the West. Resentment, wounded pride, is a powerful root of retaliation. 
And you have to wonder if someone sat down with Edomites and said, are you carrying the generational sin of wounded pride? Have you let this fester in you? And maybe for us, the question is, how how do we recognize that in us? Oftentimes we recognize it in our response to people. So you find on Facebook your old high school boyfriend who dumped you, and then they chose that other girl that you didn't think was of high character, and then it didn't work out, and you're like, well, that's what happens when you make those choices. Serves him right. (laughs) And you kind of, you have this little thing. That's the little roots of it. That's the little seeds of it, the resentment that comes from wounded pride. But Obadiah goes on, verse 10. Because of the slaughter and violence done to your brother Jacob, shame will cover you and you will be destroyed forever. You stood nearby, strangers carried off his wealth, foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem. You too were like one of them, but you shouldn't have taken pleasure. But you should have taken no pleasure over your brother on the day of his misery. Now, if you're the underlining type, look at all the different ways he describes this day, the day of his misery. You shouldn't have rejoiced over the people of Judah on the day of their devastation. You shouldn't have bragged on the day of their hardship. Like a poet, Obadiah keeps underscoring the point over and over again, the day of misery, the day of hardship, the day of devastation. And so the second thing we see that Obadiah warns about is pleasure over your enemy's failure. Pleasure over their failure to say, well, it serves them right. Many times that feeling kind of rises up in us and we find ourselves saying, well, that's what you get. Serves them right. Pleasure over an enemy's failure. We we talk very often in our context today about the sin of, of silence, of when someone else is suffering and we fail to show solidarity with the suffering Obadiah is addressing something more than that. He, he says, you, you didn't just stand by. That, that in itself may be something, but you didn't just stand by, you actually took pleasure in. And you rejoiced about it. You're like, ha, ha, they got it. They got it good. Verse 13, it goes on. You shouldn't have entered the gate of my people on the day of their defeat. You shouldn't even have looked on his suffering on the day of his disaster. You shouldn't have stolen his possessions on the day of his distress. You shouldn't have waited on the roads to destroy his escapees. I mean, can you imagine this? They're being carried off into captivity and they're like snatching people, grabbing people, plundering stuff. And you're like, dude, who does that? On the day of their hardship. Distress. You shouldn't have waited on the roads to destroy his escapees. You shouldn't have handed over his survivors on the day of defeat. The third sin that Obadiah warns us about is profiting from your enemy's fall. You took pride in your own position. You took pleasure in their failure and then you gained. You took profit from their fall. It's easy for our minds to kind of run to the looting that takes place, has, has taken place across the country, it's easy for our mind to run there and to say, well, yeah, I mean, isn't that what's happening here when people who care nothing about the cause except their own desire to gain from it or create anarchy or whatever? I mean, we can point all the way out there. But there are much closer examples closer to home. You know, when the pandemic started in the spring of last year, and people said, oh, you know, maybe the pandemic's going to be the great leveler. We're all going through this together. We're all in this together. Lots of movements and ads and commercials. We're all in this together. Until we realized that we're, we're really not. There are people who could not work from home. Uh, 
And as much as we joked about Zoom meetings, there were people who would have loved to have had their work continue on Zoom. And so the pandemic, as time went on, was not really the great equalizer, but the great revealer of how people are suffering differently. And sometimes people are trying to profit from someone else's hardship. I read in the Gazette this week that people in downtown zip codes were more likely to have lost their job in the last year. That women who were working full-time were more likely to have lost their job. Maybe some of you are listening to you're like, yeah, that, that's been my experience. And so while there are people who are like, that's hey, been great. I talked to uh, you know, people who run certain, are in certain fields and certain businesses. They're like, actually, I feel weird about saying this, but our business has boomed in this time because of you know, what they were, were, were selling. And other people have said, oh, it's, it's been awful. We've had to lay off and restructure and all of this stuff. Obadiah's word to us when there's hardship is make sure you're not profiting from someone else's fall. Don't seize upon this. Maybe it, it looks like businesses not being predatory on other businesses. If local businesses are, are closing up, maybe it means that we don't become predatory toward that and say, well, that's fine. This is my chance to now gain a monopoly in the market. It's one thing to give God thanks for you know, freedom and free enterprise. It's another thing to justify all of it and say, well, it's, it's the free market, man. Christians don't engage in capitalism the same way. We don't. We're not, look, we don't need the, well, it's technically not wrong. All's fair in love and war. Christians say, well, how can I make sure that I'm not exploiting someone else's hardship here? How can I make sure I'm actually making choices that, that might be good for them, that might help them? And I, I think you guys are a great example of, the, of, of the, the positive versions of this, of saying, we've had several people email us and say, you know what, I've, I've done okay, and I actually don't need this sort of a pandemic relief check. Is there a family in the church who does? And we've been able to distribute it for you. You guys have done it when we've been able to give away groceries and uh, stock the food pantry here. You've done it in, in all of the many ways that we were able to supply meals for well over a year to the community that we're in partnership with in Guatemala. You're part of that. I saw, I saw you at the food packing days that we had in the tent. That's the opposite of profiting from someone else's fall. I remember I, I read Obadiah in high school, which maybe tells you something about my high school life. Um, <laughs> but I remember when I read it, I thought, gosh, this seems a little, bit, a little bit harsh, you know? Like, what did Edom do? I mean, I get it when God's tough on Babylon. Like, they're brutal. I get why God's tough on Assyria. Those guys were the worst torturers in the, in the, in the, in the world at that time. And I understand Egypt, long history of oppression there, but Edom, I would, I mean, it wasn't that bad. And it's interesting because the book of Obadiah is right there in the collection of prophet books as God's way of saying, I will not tolerate any of it. None of it. And you don't get off the hook here by saying that you're not as bad as. Dot, dot, dot. And this is the tendency for us to be like, well, well, Glenn, I mean, I mean sure, okay, I did a couple of, but, but I am not fill in the blank. At least I don't. And we have this plague in our culture today of whataboutism. I know this is bad, but what about? We all have PhDs in whataboutism. We, we've got it. We, we, we have mastered the art of deflecting any attention from us. 
or the people that agree with us. And so it's easy to be like, well, what about that? And what about that? What about Babylon? What about Assyria? What about Egypt? What about, don't you think they're much worse? And God's like, I'm not talking to them. I will deal with them. But right now, I'm talking to you. And it reminds me of the line that the Russian novelist Alexander Solzhenitsyn, writing from a gulag far out in exile, wrote, That the line between good and evil does not run between political parties or between nation states. It doesn't run between the left or the right. The line between good and evil runs through every human heart. And Obadiah is God saying, I'm not letting you off the hook because here's the deal. You were actually supposed to be brothers. You were supposed to be brothers. Jacob and Esau, Israel and Edom. You're supposed to be brothers, but you're treating each other like enemies, and I won't have it. That's God's sober warning to us. I won't have it. And so, what do we do? How do we guard against these sins? What do we do? How does, how does the word of the Lord through Obadiah speak to us when we're tempted to be proud and take pleasure in and profit from? I want to suggest two things to you from the book of Obadiah. The first is this, remember the day of the Lord. Remember the day of the Lord. I've already pointed out to you how many times he talked about Judah's worst day, the day of their distress, the day of their defeat, the day of their wickedness, the day of their on and on and on. But then he says, there is a great day when I will have justice in the nations. Verse 15 through 16, the day of the Lord is near against all the nations. As you have done, so it will be done to you. Your actions will make you suffer just as you have drunk on my holy mountain. So will all the nations around you drink. They will drink and swallow quickly and they will be like they've never been before. Talking about a judgment that's coming. It's coming, the great day of the Lord in the prophetic books, in the prophet books. The day of the Lord is a day of judgment and a day of deliverance. It's supposed to be a day of judgment for the enemies of God and a day of deliverance for the people of God. But the more you keep reading in the Old Testament, those lines keep getting blur, more blur. And you're like, well, are we getting judged too? Like, yeah. I thought we were just getting rescued about that. And there is this both and. This great and terrible day. It's not a day where we can say, well, I'm fine. It's also a day that the prophets point toward in the, in the far future. It's a great day that's coming. And yet, there are these little moments, that, these little days of reckoning. We talked about a day of reckoning last week. There are these little moments over and over again where we're like, God, I think you're trying to say something here. And so even though there is a great and final and future day There are also these stops along the way that remind us that the day of the Lord is the Lord's day. The day of the Lord is the Lord's day. The book of Revelation, our series last fall that we did, you'll recall that a few chapters in, it says, John says, I was caught up in the spirit in the heavens on the Lord's day. And that's when he begins to see all these visions about seals and scrolls and the future judgment of all nations and all of this stuff. When does it happen? On the Lord's day. And it's helpful for us to remember that the day of the Lord belongs to the Lord. That means you and I can't sort all of this out. You and I can't 
be so sure about our judgments and to say, well, I'm pretty sure that those guys are going to get it. I've read a couple things uh, this week on social media with someone who's like, I, I, would hesitate, I, I would hate to be those pastors on judgment day because of what they've done and what they said and da 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 And I, I always tremble because while we know the difference between good and evil, we don't fully know how God will sort it all out. And it's not ours to decide. Only Jesus is just and merciful enough to judge. Only Jesus is fully just and fully merciful. Only he can sort it out. And every time we try to step in that seat of judgment, we have believed the lie that we don't deserve this. Therefore, we can declare who does. I don't deserve that, but I'll tell you who does. Let me tell you, Glenn, who deserves the wrath of God. I mean, again, we're we're not left in the dark. The scriptures give us a lot about what deserves God's judgment and what doesn't. It's just that the great day of the Lord is a day that requires a judge who's perfectly just and perfectly merciful. And only Jesus is that. Only Jesus is both. But the second thing to remember in the book of, as we read through this book of Obadiah is not just the day of the Lord, but the Lord of the day. The Lord of the day. Look closely at Jesus himself. Maybe some of you are in here and you're like, I don't relate to the sins of Edom. To be honest, I feel more like Judah. Like I am the one that was plundered. I am the one that my friends turned their back on me. I am the one that people that I thought were in my corner were gossiping about me. I am the one that was kicked while I was down. And you want to know today, what will Jesus do with me on my worst day? How does God respond to us on our worst day? The beautiful thing about That question is, it's a question that Obadiah doesn't answer, but it's one that the Gospels in the New Testament does. And you read the book of Obadiah as a Christian, and you look through the lens of Jesus, and you say, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Doesn't Philippians 2, which we heard read this morning, say that Jesus did not count equality with God as something to be grasped and held onto, but didn't Jesus, instead of taking pride in his position, didn't Jesus empty himself and take the form of a servant? Yes, he did. And didn't Jesus, instead of taking pleasure in our failure, in our sin, in our frailty, in our brokenness, didn't Jesus come and have compassion on us? See, friends, God doesn't look at us at our worst moments and say, what an idiot. I'm so glad that that's true. I'm so glad that when I make boneheaded decisions, Jesus isn't like, what a dummy. Can you believe that guy? He doesn't take pleasure in it. When you and I fail and fall, Jesus has compassion on us. Instead of taking pleasure in our failure, Jesus has compassion on us. And instead of profiting from our demise, Jesus dies so that we can gain. Think about that. He doesn't, when we fall, he doesn't say, okay, good, how can we gain from this? He dies so that we can gain. In fact, the way that Paul puts it is he says, Jesus who for our sake became poor so that we might become rich, that we might gain. And it makes me think of that great hymn that Charles Wesley wrote. And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? How did I come to gain from this? From the Son of God emptying himself from his 
place in heaven, the son of God taking on the form of a servant, the son of God having compassion on us. God so loved the world that he gave God who was moved by our sin and came down to die. And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain, the very one who caused his pain. For me, who him to death pursued, he chased us all the way down to his own death. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, should die for me? Did you bow your heads this morning? Maybe this is a moment to take inventory in our own soul in our own hearts to say God there are little seeds of this in me seeds of kind of rooting for the person I don't like rooting against them and I don't want that I don't want that in me I don't want that pride I don't want that resentment. I don't want that. And the cure, the antidote for that kind of toxic stuff is the grace of God. St. Augustine said it's the grace of God that helps us not just believe what we should love, but love what we believe do it, to love it. Only the grace of God can reorder our hearts this morning. And maybe you're here and you're resonating with the other side of this and saying, actually, I just, I really, I just feel like the one who's been devastated. I've had the day of my devastation, the day of my distress and misery. You will not find a God who is like Edom. You will not find a God who delights in that, who brags about that, who mocks that, you will find a God who is tender with you on your worst day. We have a God who is gentle with us on our worst day. And so as we get ready to come to the table of the Lord this morning, I want you to prepare your hearts, prepare your hearts to receive again the grace of God.